The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. At IJM, we know where people are enslaved and we have a plan to rescue them, but we need your help. If you would please go to IJM.org and find out ways that you can give and advocate on behalf of those we seek to serve. Again, that's IJM.org. Thank you. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we are privileged to have a conversation with Michelle Higgins. Let's talk a bit through Miss Higgins's bio. She holds an MDiv. She is the Director of Worship and Outreach for South City Church. In addition, Michelle is the Director and Founding Member for Faith for Justice, a Christian advocacy group dedicated to continuing the biblical story of activism. And as if that wasn't enough, she is a member of the coordinating team for St. Louis Action Council and works with a number of activist groups. She also serves as a conference director for the Leadership Development Resource Weekend, LDRW, which amplifies black voices for today's church in an annual gathering founded to address the core concerns of dignity, identity, and significance for people of color. But where I first heard about Michelle Higgins and heard her incredible voice was on the Truth's Table podcast, which, P.S., if you have not subscribed to and are not listening to Truth's Table, you should pause this podcast. I mean, just stop the podcast and go subscribe to Truth's Table because she and her co-hosts are, as they describe themselves, midwives of culture for grace and truth. And it is one of my favorite shows. And Michelle is just so good on it. I will stop giving her biography now, though there is much more to talk about, and she'll talk about some of it in the interview, but I wanted to tell you all of that because Michelle is just an incredible person, and this conversation is one that I found myself listening back to and taking copious notes on because she is brilliant and just so engaging, and I feel very lucky that you get to hear her speak right now. Here is the conversation I got to have with Michelle Higgins. I wanted to ask you first, because as we were setting up this interview and working out schedules, you mentioned that you're volunteering as admin support for a, a, for you said the quote was for a rapidly growing client roster in a jail reform lawsuit. I am, Mm -hmm. can, can you tell me at all about that jail reform lawsuit and how you're supporting it? Yeah, absolutely. So I work for an activist collective focused on Black liberation locally in St. Louis, Missouri, called Action St. Louis. And one of our main goals is to see abolition happen in mass Mm -hmm. incarceration, specifically to dream about what life looks like beyond police and beyond jails. And because of that, we've become the lead organizing collective for a campaign called Close the Workhouse. And the workhouse in St. Louis is basically a debtor's prison, but it is part and parcel of the racialized criminal legal system in the city of St. Louis. And across the country, there are campaigns like Close the Jail ATL. There's a jail closure campaign in 
um, LA as well. What's happening in St. Louis is that 700 people are being held. Um, judges have made decisions on bail, bond, and um, a lot of things that people might consider kind of boring and mundane, but judges are basically not taking into consideration the ability of people to pay bail when they decide where a person should sit while they're waiting for their day in court. Now, a lot of people are held for marijuana possession. They're held for um, other things that folks might be able to pay bond and then wait for their day at court at home or fight fight their case from home. But in St. Louis, the average jail stay pre-trial is 200 days. And wow. there are 700 people who've been in jail over a year um, or about a year, basically, because they're poor. And a federal judge got involved just a couple weeks ago and said, y'all need to make this right or you're going to have to pay fines and fees that you're trying to make the public pay. So our client list wow. went from about 85 to 500. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> <laughs> in a very short time. Yeah. No um, way. Yeah. It's a so, huge win. It basically means we won our lawsuit. Um, there's snakes coming out of the toilets in the local jail. There are lice and um, unpurified water. There's uh, there's unpotable water when people shower, drink, bathe. They can't wash their hands with the water. They can't wash their faces and bodies with the water in the jail. Wow. And there's black mold, and there are so many rats. It it oh reeks in the jail, and now people employed at the jail are sick as well. And so, despite the inhumane, I, I guess it's not even living mm-hmm. conditions, but the inhumane right. conditions of the jail. I mean, mm-hmm. if somebody's in pre-trial jail, mm-hmm. so just for my own clarity, this means they haven't been convicted of a crime. It's that they exactly. are staying in jail because mm-hmm. the amount of money that they would have to pay to post bond is or to post bail is too expensive. So first, exactly. how much how much are we talking? Like how much money are people for like a, a marijuana possession charge? Mm-hmm. What how much are, would would they need? Between 500 and 1500 generally. That is a huge amount of money to consider. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay, so so then they for have the to For the working sit- class especially and oh. and a lot of unhoused people. I mean, the average yeah. person is unhoused and needs addiction resources or employment resources. So yeah. they're already quite poor when they get arrested. Plus, you know, this is part of why I'm an abolitionist. Hotspot policing, um, stop and frisk, and the clear targeting of black people, especially yes. dark-skinned black people who are homeless, who are already in quote-unquote dangerous neighborhoods, they're going to get arrested more often because police are trolling there. I don't see police when I go shopping in the suburban areas um, where there are pristine lawns and large houses. So we know what it looks like to live in a community without police. You just have mm-hmm. to be rich. That's yes. it. Yes. So that's a huge part of why I I am working to see these folks who are already targeted by law enforcement and to really shift the definition of public safety. Yeah. And then they're in, right. Because because then they're in jail for 200 days or a year Mm -hmm. and that just decimates their life. So even if they they lose their kids, their job, their everything, I mean, it's just whatever life there was, you can't just put everything on hold for a year. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like societally there is, people are, 
waking up and aware of this or to those mm-hmm. who have means basically just turn a blind eye because it really wouldn't affect like mm-hmm. it's it's just not affecting us directly mm-hmm. yeah that's a difficult question i think yeah it In may not be a good question there's... either <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think the hard questions are important, and it's a big reason why people of means have to make choices because we we are conditioned by the American dream to associate ourselves only with what we need to survive, and and that requires us to define survival in a broad communal and in my tradition a holy way. So the way that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, just to get super Christian real fast, um, decided to define survival was through creation and then through abundant, steadfast love. The original divine purpose was creativity and just almost addictive. I have to have my creation and the crown of my creation with me at all times. Mm. So for God to survive, Humanity was not a requirement. However, God decided to create and then humanity became the passion of the divine. And I believe the humans are made in God's image and thus able to to define our survival according to the attitudes and natures of our creator. And so if a white person realizes that they do not need to interact with poor people or especially poor black people in order to, I don't know, pay their mortgage, send their children to a good school, uh, make sure that they have their 401k in order, make sure their retirement, et cetera, is all in order. And that, again, they can be charitable, but just apply money to the problem or send their thoughts and prayers, then they are defining survival in a way that is very much unlike the way the creative and uh, hospitable God defines it. And so it's not really that society itself is waking up or is asleep, but society, I I believe, doesn't necessarily have um, what we would call a faith perspective, a covenantal perspective on the way that humans need each other. We Mm. have this saying in the movement for Black liberation, I'm not free unless all oppression comes to an end. Ain't nobody free till everybody free. It's how right. Fannie Lou Hamer right. said it. And so that's how I choose to define the thriving of my children. If they do not know what's happening in Asian America, if they do not know what's happening to Native Americans, then I'm not doing them any justice by being a parent. Um, mm. And that doesn't contribute to whether or not they're eating every day. But I believe that there is more to life than bread alone. Wow. But within that, there is, uh, and what a good answer to a fumbled question, and I appreciate your, your thoughtfulness in it. <laughs> like, it, I, as, I, as I think through the work that you do with Faith for Justice, and, and actually, could, mm. could you talk a bit about what Faith for Justice is instead of me trying to define it for our listeners? Could you tell us sure. why, why you founded this and what, what y'all do? Yeah. So on August 9th in 2014, I was working at uh, a worship ministry conference to encourage people to view global worship as centered in God's um, good creational plan. And around the time where we were all breaking to have lunch, 
um, young man, um, a teenager named Michael Brown Jr., was murdered in cold blood by a police officer named Darren Wilson. Mm -hmm. And Michael Brown laid on the ground for four and a half hours. School was out at this time. And his neighbors, young children, the elders of the neighborhood, all watched his blood stream down a normally quiet, just people out having barbecues neighborhood street. The police did not do anything, not only to bring him justice, but they left the body while they figured out how they were going to protect the officer that laid him waste on the ground. Mm. And I believe that the blood of my brother, Michael Brown, um, cried out from the ground. And the Lord heard that. And sadly, many of the people in the evangelical church did not. And so when I joined the protesters on the streets for almost 200 days of protesting, I met maybe a dozen um, fellow evangelicals who felt this sense of righteousness in the spiritual practice of protesting unjust laws. And so a dozen of us would get together and mourn, lament, and then decided to begin to challenge the leadership in our denominations and in our local churches. And we felt strongly that our faith was unto the cause of God's justice. So we were founded early 2015 is when when we became official, but we had been meeting every week to pray together and to uplift the issues and really ask really hard questions to challenge ourselves, to wake up ourselves in ways that our local churches were not offering. And so that led to uh, me going to get intensive organizing training in the SNCC and SCLC traditions. Those are two of some of the um, original civil rights movement organizations. Dr. King was involved. Uh, Ella Baker is one of the most incredible organizers who ever lived. And so I was trained in those traditions, joined by a few of the fellow founders of Faith for Justice. And then later we decided that I would lead the um, organization as I was growing closer to different people in the larger movement for Black Lives, which itself is not religious, but I, I felt much more welcomed in an ecumenical space than I did in evangelical spaces where I carry over two dozen active death threats, all from people who claim to be Christians and from people who say that I am uh, working to turn white people into racists. And all I, I've never had a death threat really? from anyone who's not a Christian or anyone who's in the movement for Black lives. So I work in, in close proximity to people in the movement intentionally showing and giving grace to people of faith who have not once been told that protest might be a theological practice, that protest might be exactly what Jesus was doing when he turned the definitions of power and authority on their heads. Protest might be exactly what he was doing when he laid down his life in public. And protest might be exactly what he will be doing when he shuts down all of the world's powers and makes the last the first when he comes again. So Faith for Justice takes hmm. the story of scripture. We're based, um, oddly enough, in covenantal reformed theology. And we challenge the white supremacy that has so deeply corrupted sacred spaces. And we strive to do that with the patience and the grace that the Holy Spirit 
shows us when we are blind, when we are foolish. Um, so our intent is to extend three things, mainly training to people of faith, challenge to leaders and to shepherds in different churches, and then on-ramps, actually encouraging people to come and get trained to be marshals for big marches, encouraging people to receive de-escalation training so that mm. they can be involved in group support, race trauma therapy. And we end up really showing people that the same way you can get excited about your favorite sports team, you can make a lifestyle, a pattern of being involved in liberation movements, and it can mm. fold right in. In fact, it, it can become centered in your faith walk. In, in the mission and, and values of Faith for Justice, you talk about mm. pursuing the biblical call to action, conformity mm -hmm. to sound biblical theology. And it, it struck me as I read that, that like I felt like I inherently knew what you were talking about. And I was like, yes, this is, we, would, we would all be on the same page. But it also struck me that yeah. there is a lot of room for varying opinions within those statements because people, mm -hmm. I mean, even we're not I'm like, even not on the fringes, just good center of, of the faith kind of <laughs> folks, right? That's like, right. Draw out and write into scripture mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, how do you handle disagreement within the people mm -hmm. who, who are, who you're teaching and training and how do you how do you handle that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question in part because when it comes to racial division, right. being American and being a Christian in America it is is very hard. It's very difficult to mm. approach the idea of dismantling white supremacy from the American church where oh, white yeah. supremacy is at the founding of almost every conservative denomination that exists today. There's no hiding. And basically during the Civil War or right around there, when slavery abolition was growing, there were a number of denominations that decided we are going to split literally because some of us believe that African people are not human and some of us believe that African people are. And that's the history of Christian worship in the United States. And so I, I don't have, I, I don't lack patience for people who are struggling through that. And especially for people who have no idea that the history of their own hymns is racist. The history of a, a lot of their discipleship pedagogy is racist. And so handling disagreement starts first with looking at the life of Jesus and how did he handle disagreement? Specifically, how did he show love to the rulers of the day that he brazenly labeled as vipers broods? How was that loving? And what we're beginning to see and to understand is that the approach of our Lord was humility that actually emboldened him. And so Faith for Justice intentionally does practices of um, spiritual contemplation, and those are held Mainly, I'm going to just give you a freebie. Um, we hold a lot <laughs> of our spiritual practices um, in the one of the best books I've ever read by Dr. Barbara Holmes called uh, Joy Unspeakable, the African and African-American contemplative practices that at the heart dismantle the supremacy that would lead us to quietness is, is piety. Um, we dismantle that and we still strive for humble approach. 
and disagreement. And then we demand that people respect each other when we have different theologies that are founded in doing no harm, that are founded in dignifying God's good creation. Um, People have differing theologies of work. They have differing theologies of building boundaries. They have different theologies of suffering. Um, And we also do a lot of work, especially around the understanding of uh, systemic racism. And so we do employ Mm -hmm. critical race theory in our theology and our spiritual practices. And I think the biggest thing that has helped us in dealing with disagreements, especially with people who say our biggest fight right now is, is gender a social construct? Is it not a social construct? Mm -hmm. And I can get really tired of that argument because whether or not a child wears cowboy boots or princess shoes is such a social construct to me. But I'm able to face people who say, I'm struggling with this. Because if they're willing to be open and honest and say that they struggle, I want to be open and honest and not gatekeep or turn them away just for struggling. And it allows a lot of us to to really found and base our principles that we preach about in the fact that all human intelligence is limited. All humanity has limited sight, thus limited scope. And when I speak, I am speaking to you from a deeply ingrained personality. And my personality is not going to react the same as the character and, you know, all of the past baggage and whatever that you might bring to a particular issue. So we do argue, we do fight. Um, There's pain, there's fumbling, there's a lot, a lot of failure. But if we practice confessionalism, and that is not to say, I believe in all these things and they're the absolute truth, not that kind of confessionalism. I believe in saying, I am capable of failure. And I believe in a God who embraces failing people because God loves to see people who fail admit their failure and strive for honesty and discover what's really the perfect community inside of it um, through humility and honesty and boldness, not from arrogance, but boldness from knowing that we're all limited. So let's do this together because I have something that you need. And you have something that I need. And if I'm humble, I can hear you better. And that's why I think Jesus was really arguing with the Pharisees. They didn't want to hear it right? at all. Right. And that's really the only reason that he was so bold. To, to what you were saying, or a part of what you were saying, we had, um, and just was privileged to have Lisa Sharon Harper on the show a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just, you know, blows your hair back because she's just in a minute. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and I know a lot of the listeners were challenged by her reframing of really the, the whitewashing of Western Christianity and mm-hmm. European, um, this or mm-hmm. European view of Christianity. And I know that you've spoken about that frequently on truth's table, um, mm-hmm. the, on the podcast. And I, I think that there is a there was a practical question that people were asking after we sort of started talking about that question, which is when people who are part of a church, leading a church, raising children, just trying to navigate their faith in America and navigate their yeah. church setting in America, when they want to stop misrepresenting the image of God and represent mm-hmm. God as who God is, how wh- how do you... Or what would you offer them to start de-Westernizing their approach to Jesus? Mm. 
That's such an important practice, not only to realize um, that it is necessary to dismantle, and I put it in rather concrete terms. And I, I strive not to harm people in the way I communicate, but it is true that whiteness itself is uh, a tool of the enemy. And so in order for us to stop mm. rep- misrepresenting Christ, we, we do have to dismantle whiteness. And so when people sit and grapple with that on a personal level, then a family level, then their faith community level, and then a national level, then they'll, they'll begin to discover a lot of what they have to take down and address on their own. So I encourage people first to dig deep into the life of Jesus. Um, people who are of other faiths need to search their sacred texts and look around at the ways that their own life is structured after a model of basic whiteness, which says that you have to look a certain way in order to have societal value. Two, that you have to um, be controlling in order to really be strong. You have to be in complete control of your past, your present, and your future. And three, the temptation to cover and to deceive in order to make people think not only that you have it all together, but Mm. that you have all of the answers and everyone around you should know and understand the same things that you do in order for them to be right and thus have value. But I believe that once we begin to discover these things just on our own, that we need to look at what are the places that we have allowed to control us and to define righteous living. If it is, let's take patriotism, for example. There are a lot of, my dad is ex-military. He's retired chaplain. And when he looks at his own path through the military, he talks about being um, really absorbed in having all of the structures of law and order centered in his life as to how living right is really couched inside of American patriotism. Well, that's the first thing he had to dismantle because that was the thing that was giving him life. And this is super Old Testament. The Lord says, take care of your idols. And so if people are discovering that academia is their idol, then maybe they need to do a cleanse, a detox, and read and start diving into Baldwin instead of the average white academic that they're reading. If people discover that parenting is their idol, my kids are awesome, they're perfect, my whole life is associated with how well they are doing, with how good they are, then maybe they need to ask their children, what, what do they think Jesus looked like? What do they think about the oppression of the children of Israel and the Exodus? And they need to start teaching and learning themselves what it's like to be a humble and humbled child of God. Maybe Christianity itself, as defined by the United States, is what their idol is. And then they need to look at what do they believe their worship practices are? What's keeping them alive? And what are the discipleship tools that they can find? Lisa Sharon Harper's book, The Very Good Gospel, is a great place to start for people looking for discipleship tools. And I dare say, just dropping plugs here, um, discovering the saints that we didn't think were saints is a very helpful tool. Faith for Justice has a conference coming up in late August. 
And we're going to intentionally talk about Black women through really the history of the church that people have never considered holding Fannie Lou Hamer and Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the, in the same esteem. Exactly. People have never thought about looking at the life of Coretta Scott King as they discover and really whitewash the life and words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and really elevating and seeing who have I never thought was worthy of my time. That is how you dismantle this idea that it is not oppression to ignore people. It is participating in oppression to ignore groups of people simply because you think they have nothing to say. And so I believe that a lot of the practices that we can create and be imaginative about are going to come out again of our confessing the practices that have blinded us. That's part of why I really love leading worship because what people never think about is that singing praying and Sunday school and Christian education habits are at the center of upholding whiteness in worship spaces. Nobody thinks that only singing really true and and Bible-based hymns might be participating in oppression. No one really thinks through that until they sit and they go, oh, wow, I, I am intentionally not learning about and not singing and not praying through the issues that are at the heart of some of the most oppressed and therefore most wise and intelligent people on the face of the earth, simply by only hanging out with the people that look and act like me. And so I've I've encouraged people to dismantle their worship practices, to explore, to be confessional about their worship practices, and to ask themselves, is someone who leads you Somebody who disciples you, who tells you what scripture means, does that person listen to poor, oppressed, despised people? For instance, someone who is hated for the color of their skin, someone who is hated for the language they speak, someone who is hated for the region of the world where they come from. Is, is the person who's in charge of your faith walk, who's, a, who's directing you in your faith walk, are they listening? to the voices that are the voices that God is talking to. Because God is not talking to the rich people in the world. He is not addressing the people who are at the top of the food chain when he speaks. Um, The Lord is speaking to a very specific audience, and he wants everyone to hear. Don't hear me say that scripture is not for everyone, but do hear me say that the first five books of the Bible were written for people who were coming out of slavery and thus people whose ancestors were enslaved and people who are now coming out of the slavery of mass incarceration, police brutality, and the microaggressions that are building up to oppress us still might have a helpful perspective unless your pastor is looking into the life of the first actual Americans, quote unquote, because even the word America is problematic for Native people. Unless we're looking at the struggles of the Native people that we have made invisible in order to call ourselves safe, unless we're talking to them, then we really shouldn't be talking about what God wants us to do in this country that really is a veneer, a facade of a country sitting on top of somebody else's land. And and so I, I think that, you know, really to start to represent Jesus well is more so to learn 
how we have defined ourselves. Um, and how are you siloed and what is corrupting you? So it does seem like, oh, you're not giving me books to read or a church to go to. No, I think if you white and you ready to wake up, you need to stay in your church and go challenge oh, yeah. your pastor, you know? Um, right. And certainly if, if you get to the point where the people who are in leadership at your church are not advocating, they're not doing well, they're not receptive to your humble challenges, then you do need to get into the practice of um, talking through and telling them, hey, I, I'm going to go to move into this and I hope that you'll join me. Um, and I don't blame people who can't stand it, can't deal with it. I have a lot of friends who adopt children of color and they know that they cannot raise their children in a whitewashed faith community. Right. Um, and so sometimes people have to leave. But if you feel the call, a prophetic call, you don't have to be a prophet to listen to and honor the words of the prophets. If you feel that call, stay where you are and push because I want to raise my baby girl in a world where she doesn't have to be afraid that the average dude is going to find a way to cat call her and call it okay. That the average white pastor is going to be afraid of how bold and vivacious she is. Hmm. Um, and that takes white folks gathering themselves. And it takes Black people understanding healing pathways so that we become resilient to all of the supremacist notions that we are bound to face wherever we are. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, that was a super long answer. That was, but, you, you do know, not need I'm to be sorry. Right that was, no, 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 no. That was the perfect answer. And I just feel disrespectful talking about after it. Like, we just need a second to just hear that. Um, <laughs> when we actually think about, I, I'm thinking of somebody practically sitting in the middle of, you know, Iowa, not to put Iowa on blast. I'll just use my own city. Sure. Sitting in Orlando yeah. in, and they are realizing, I mean, right now they're hearing you and they're bell is rung and they're like no 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 this this worship is not what i thought it was and i'm how do they mm. how practically do they start to i guess what i'm getting at and i'll get to it it's hard to mm -hmm. understand our blind spots even if we know they're blind spots and so mm -hmm. how do they sit in a church service and realize what is and is not uh, healthy and helpful to have a truly like God represented church. How do they actually mm -hmm. start to decode like this hymn is okay or this one isn't? And I know it's mm -hmm. not that simple and it's not that, but sure. it kind of is like, yeah. how do they practically start to engage in that process of being the change they'd hope to see in their own church? Mm -hmm. All right, Mandela, Mandela quote. <laughs> I know, yes. I know. pretty appropriate. I would say not for me to quote that at all. It's like every time I listen to your podcast, which I listen to it a lot, I laugh oh, every good. time you say truth built by black women uh, for right. black women. That's and I laugh right. every time because I'm just your normal white guy listening. <laughs> Look, there is standing um, room, standing room. I love it. I'm privileged yeah. to be in the audience. Um, but, good, but how do people good. practically begin to, to be a part of that change? 
Yeah. So there, there are a few um, basic, like if everyone wants to just like, okay, write this down. I try to, I try really I hard to give like brief steps. Um, the first thing is to understand that in a world of division and uh, arrogance, we tend to hear our inner critic first. And um, my, mm. my beloved Enneagram ones, um, who are oftentimes my fellow justice warriors. I'm an eight. And so I, I see a lot of the inner critic pain um, that comes from, I mean, really a lot of white folks in the world who first hate themselves. And it just so happens that self-hatred is the number one killer of white men right now. And so I want to encourage uh, specifically people who are in the practice like me of challenging white people and people who are white, who are in church spaces where they're going, Oh my God, I hate my upbringing. I now hate my parents. <laughs> right, I hate right, my right. pastor. <laughs> right. What have I become? <laughs> What's it all about? Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I feel Baldwin says black people have such deep, um, fascinated pity at the way that white folks hate each other and hate themselves first, instead of practicing this wonderment that leads us to patience and grace. Is it possible that diving deep into the stories of oppressed people is not just to try to squeeze your white guilt out of a hug with a black lady, right. um, to not just suck on Sojourner's teats just because she's got so much nourishment and you've been parched in a desert. Maybe you're diving into the stories of the patients of the people who were sitting at Mother Emanuel when the Charleston Nine were yes. massacred. Maybe you are understanding that you are related to Dylan Roof. Maybe yeah. you're beginning to understand that Dylan Roof could have been avoided. And the first pathway to making sure that your baby boy doesn't turn into Dylan Roof is loving that child the way that the Lord loved you. So maybe, and, and this is not a maybe, this is step number yes. one. Right. Whatever you do, practice the patience of active love. Be very very present and actively patient immediately, as much as the Holy Spirit will guide you, cause your hatred, arrogance, and even your depression about how you grew up to decrease, cause it to decrease. It doesn't have to go away, but let it decrease so that the Holy Spirit's active um, teaching of why you're there for such a time as this, let that increase and cause you to overflow with patience for the ignorant and, yes, the enemy forces that you may be surrounded by in your church. That first step is going to lead you to the kind of humble boldness that will make you say, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the hymn, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. What beautiful mm. words. Has it been entrenched in places where um, Black folks are made fun of for retuning it, where people who simply want to sing it in Spanish are dismissed yeah. for bringing a non-traditional language into worship? Absolutely. But what if that hymn itself can still cause you to worship 
and you can use some of the pieces of authority that it describes, the pieces of the ways that God is active and strong and all-powerful, and humanity must submit to the plan of the Lord, how can you, this is step two, how can you look at your current worship practices and praise what is already of good intent? And when you take that good intent, the third step is to challenge the gaping holes where your church and the budget of your church, the discipleship of your church, the children's curriculum. I will always harp on children's curriculum because you are telling children who Jesus is and they have no reason to think you're lying. So you have to go down to the nursery. You have to go down to children's church and you have to make sure that you tell people that Jesus was a brown skinned, oppressed baby boy who right after he was born, the president of the country he was born in demanded that all brown skinned baby boys be murdered. Children have to be made aware of the true stories of their own faith ancestors. And in order to really challenge that third piece, you have to do the part two of saying, are we true to what we say we believe? Take the Nicene Creed, take the Westminster Confession, break that mess down and ask your pastors and your church leaders, if we are a church in the United States, are we being honest about the history of our country when we claim to be raising and discipling people to not only survive, but to evangelize in this country. If your only evangelism is to support the local private Christian school where you are not allowed to come and learn unless you sign a statement of faith, tell me how that matches with bring peace to the city where you are exiled. Tell me how it could possibly match Jesus going around his safe space to go and see the women in Samaria. Tell me how that matches with Jesus sitting next to people who were involved in sex work, people who were literally oppressing and exploiting others in their taxes. Tell me how that matches, except with the way that the Pharisees were collecting money to line their own pockets, except with the way that the Pharisees were standing in the corner of the temple and saying, Lord, I'm just glad I'm not like this hump, this crazy little tax collector who is evil. Tell me how that matches with real incarnational truth. So look at the practices and the doctrines that your church claims to hold. If those doctrines are corrupt, then you do need to think about um, a humble but honest departure because Everyone who begins to practice this, the dismantling of white supremacy has to make sure that they have accountability practices that do two things. And this is step four. After you know you must not hate yourself. Two, after you acknowledge that maybe some of your worship practices and some of your discipleship really is good and godly. Three, you begin to challenge and hold up the candle of scripture, the bright light of scripture to all of the practices that you think, oh, this might be off. This might be blind. This might be deeply biased. Four, you have to make sure that you have a hearer and an advocate who is in leadership, who is listening to you. And if they say, I am actively struggling, that is good enough. If they say, 
I really want to talk more with you about this. Let them be Nicodemus for a little while. Let them come in the dark of the night. At least they're coming. At least they're starting to read Strength to Love or Martin Luther King's sermons. Let them really wrestle because they have to go through the same activity of refusing to hate themselves as well. But if your leadership is actively biased and proud of their bias, then you will not be a good justice warrior. You will not be a good worker and evangelist of the faith because you will not have the accountability that keeps you humble and you will not have a home to bring people to when you minister to people outside of the church and they are ready to come and sit at God's table. If you are in a place where God's table is fenced off from people who are perceived as quote unquote unworthy, if you are in a place where hospitality is not at the center of what your ministries do, then you have to find a place that will welcome the people the Lord is leading you to be hospitable to and that will challenge you in a loving and direct way to continue to be a humble and bold servant of the liberation of all people. And that's why Jesus came. So the really concrete pieces that step-by-step have to be developed in community and they have to be developed in context. There are brothers and sisters in Korean churches where my advice to people in white churches would not be the same. There are brothers and sisters in Chinese churches where dismantling model minority practice is going to be very different from dismantling outwardly racist practices in an all-white space. I have brothers and sisters in all-black churches that hold capitalism as equal to the standard of godliness, and their dismantling practices are going to look different. But the basic tenets of loving, of challenging, of promoting all that is good, that is holy, and that is of good report, and then striving to find faithfulness in all of the things that fall short, those are always going to help you. And they'll not only be universal, but they will help you to find that community the way that I didn't leave my church when I found a faith for justice, but I had to have faith for justice to be a place where I was working out the issues that my church wasn't ready to embrace me on. So we find that sometimes it's not getting up and running away from the church, and it's not getting up and saying, all right, now I can't receive anything good from this all-white worship. I think sometimes we find, oh, wow, I have to change my definition of joy and everyday life. So my everyday rhythms might not be that I make sure I watch my favorite show every week and that I have a book club that focuses on my favorite novel. My everyday rhythms might shift for a season to where what I love to do, I make space for what I need to do. And that makes me a person who's more alive. It doesn't mean that you never go to Six Flags again, obviously. (laughs) But it means that the money you're setting aside for that vacation in Europe or Thailand or even Miami, that money, um, it it might go to buying 10 copies of um, a book that you discover you need to read together. Um, and And you tell your friends, you know, 
wine night is, is going to be our prayer group. It's odd to me that prayer isn't joyful in our, in our circles. It's odd yes. to me that we have to go to brunch in order to feel alive. And I <laughs> love brunch. I <sighs> love it. I know. Who doesn't? But, but I know I, what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I wonder if we began to start hungering and thirsting for prayer and for deep spiritual connection, then we might discover, one, that we can survive the spaces that are not on that right pathway yet. We can challenge them. And two, we can become resilient and innocent, beautifully childlike in how we approach God, who is the one who has all of the answers. Um, so a lot of my friends who are like sports fans and I yes. follow the Williams sisters everywhere. Wimbledon is coming up. Yes. Yeah. And they have, um, she's on the Wheaties box. It's just a man. Oh Wait, my gosh. Isn't I'm that like, the greatest? I hate Wheaties. I am buying I 10 boxes. Like hundred <laughs> percent. It's the coolest. It's, it's and her so picture, great. she picked, she picked out her own picture, of course. Oh my gosh. And it's so, I mean, she's just, screaming the glory. Just, yeah it's uh, perfect it's everything uh, um, i love it and yeah, those yeah. moments those moments are made so rich and they're also um to me they shift in their deep importance it shifts for me um what i cry out for and what i need and that victory i really need to see my team go to victory or oh, i really need my kid to get an a on this test in order to feel like i'm a good parent that shifts for me because in the habits of prayer, I'm able to really just sit back and enjoy my favorite Netflix show rather right. than needing it to escape. I'm able to really sit back and enjoy my bourbon and ginger ale right. rather than clinging to it like a crutch that's going to make all of the pain go away. And so I've had friends who discover um, that their marriages change because of their spiritual intimacy. I've had friends discover that their ideas about and pain over being single is shifting because of their spiritual intimacy. And I've had friends realize, oh, I, I am really just dating this person because I want someone to hold on to. Mm. And now I'm clinging to my hunger for the spirit who never left you, who's already there. And so I just wonder if, if Christianity, American Christianity, teaches us that being pious isn't fun. <laughs> and that's why we don't have any joy. Friends, Michelle Higgins. Incredible, right? I would encourage you to keep up with Michelle and all of the activism podcasting work that she is doing. A good place to start is on her Twitter. Her Twitter handle is Afro Rising. And I will, again, put all links to all things in the show notes. Michelle, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. The conversation that has begun here will continue on the New Activist social media. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are all New Activist Is, one word New Activist Is, as well as our website, newactivist.is. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say in response to Michelle's thoughts. A huge thank you to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. His tour dates, music, merch, etc. can be found at HumbleBeast.com or on Twitter at PropHipHop. Also, make sure you check out the Red Couch podcast. He is a part of that. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Michelle Higgins and my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>